Now the Passover and the festival of, of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to each other, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went, to the pla- they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to them. To him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Thanks, Daniel. Can you hear me better? A little bit? Okay. Um, Okay. It'd be helpful to have that open or look at the outline on the back. I don't know how you do both at the same time, but you're clever. You can do it, can't you? I think it's obvious to most people familiar with Christianity at all, that Christians have a sort of morbid fascination with Jesus' death. After all, we have crosses on all our buildings, we even wear them on chains around our necks, and you know what a cross is, don't you? A cross was an instrument of torture and death. It's sort of like me having an electric chair sitting on top of your building, or a gallows. Well, what do you think that the population, that your neighbours would think if you put one of those, a gallows, up on top of your house and said, that I'm a Christian? It's a really weird symbol of Christianity, isn't it? It shows that we seem to have this fascination with Jesus' death. Even our songs have something like that. Some of them have quite bizarre imagery. Washed in the blood of Jesus, standing at the foot of the cross. It's actually unique in religions. No other religion has this sort of focus on the death of their founder. The death of Muhammad, for example, is no big thing in in Islam. The death of Buddha is lost in the midst of time. So for Christians... They have this fascination with the death of Jesus. And it really comes directly out of the four biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels that we have in our Bibles. Uh, Mark, the Gospel we're looking at uh, over this semester, somebody has described Mark as a passion narrative, that is a story about somebody's death, with a long introduction. And from chapter 8 onwards, when Jesus first tells his disciples, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm going to be executed and killed, that's been overshadowing everything, like a dark cloud. And in chapter 14, this chapter we're looking at today, the death of Jesus fills the whole lens. Everything focuses on his impending crucifixion. Now we're going to look at all the details today. Uh, But we're going to look at three scenes that open a window into the significance, the meaning of Jesus' death. So that we sort of understand it when we see it happen, which is what we'll do next week. It's a little bit like a pre-lab, those science students. You you go to the pre-lab and you find out what's going to happen in the lab. So when you get there, you're ready for it and you love them, don't you? Maybe. Well, scene one, this extravagant waste. A woman gate crashes a dinner party that Jesus is at. And she has this alabaster flask of perfumed oil, very expensive. Um, And uh, she breaks it, because that's how you do this sort of alabaster flask. You've got to break the top of it. You've got to use it all in one go. And she pours it over Jesus' head in this public display of uninhibited devotion or gratitude or love or something. But she cops some flack for it. Verse 4, some of those present were indignant, saying, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her sharply. 
that she blew the whole thing about fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth in one go. And if you think fifty or sixty thousand dollars, that can do some real good, couldn't it? Imagine if you could feed starving people with fifty thousand dollars. That would provide quite a lot of food for people who are close to death or housing for them. They've got a point, hasn't she? Haven't they? I don't know whether you realise this, but about $2,000 billion is spent each year on arms around the world. $2,000 billion. I, I, it's too much for me to imagine, actually. Let me break it down a bit. If you just took two days of that expense, you could feed every hungry person in the world for a whole year. That's staggering, isn't it? Well, it's actually obscene. But we'd spend all that money on arms when people are starving to death, and that's all it would take. Just two days' worth of that arms would feed people for a whole year. And yet we spend it. Our governments spend it. Our leaders spend it. That's what's happening. Or another example, in Cote d'Ivoire, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, in West Africa, in the 1980s, the president built a basilica modelled on St Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, except it's bigger. It's huge. It'll, it'll uh, accommodate about 18,000 people inside this basilica. It's almost never used. He built it, he said, to the glory of God. It cost more than $300 million in the 1980s. That's, that's more than a billion dollars now. In a country where millions of people are starving to death. That's obscene, isn't it? He says it's to the glory of God, but it's an extravagant waste. Well... This is a much smaller scale, what this woman does with the alabaster flask, but it's, it's like that, isn't it? And she's criticised for it. I remember had, uh, sitting down with a group of law students and we read this story, and we, uh, I said to them, Let, let's debate this out. So we divided into the prosecution and the defence. Uh, some of them wanted to try and prosecute this woman for, for waste, others tried to defend her, and they had a debate for about 15 minutes. Guess which side won? The prosecution. Easy. This is a waste, isn't it? And yet Jesus defends her. Leave her alone, he says in verse 6. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a good thing. That the, the term he uses has moral as well as aesthetic uh, implications. Why? Well, he gives two reasons, makes two points. The first is about the timing, verse 7. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them any time you want but you will not always have me. You'll always have poor, you can, and you should help them at any time, including 2018. But he says, you won't always have me with you. His presence, he says, makes this a unique slice of history. Any other time, they'd be right in criticising it, but not today, not at this time. Now, you've got to stop and think, who does Jesus think he is? That his presence makes that much difference. It sounds like delusions of grandeur, doesn't it? His second point in verse 8 is, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. I doubt this is what she's got in mind, but Jesus understands what she's done as getting his body ready for his own death and burial just over the horizon. Now, at first sight, that seems to just increase the idea of waste, doesn't it? You hear of people today who spend thousands of dollars on a beautiful, luxurious coffin. And I think, what a waste of money. You're just going to die. It's going to be buried. It's going to get eaten by worms. Why would you spend money on death? Surely better to spend money on the living 
than the dead. That just increases the sense of waste, doesn't it? So how can that be a good thing? What's so special about Jesus' death? He did incredible things while he was alive, didn't he? He fed 5,000 people at one go, 4,000 another go. He healed incurable diseases. They're the sort of things you get Nobel Prizes for. What could his death achieve that outweighs those sort of things? That's the question Jesus leaves us with. What is clear, though, is that Jesus thinks his death is incredibly significant. It will achieve something bigger than feeding five thousands and thousands of people. Scene one, Jesus' death is monumental. Scene two, everyone laughed. That was supposed to be a joke. No, you still don't get it. Think about it. Monumental. Okay. Um, Scene two, the Last Supper. Now, we tend to read this story of the Last Supper sort of through the lens of church practice or da Vinci frescoes. But what Jesus and his disciples take part in on this night was not the Eucharist or a Mass or a service of Holy Communion, but a Passover. It was a Jewish Passover, and Mark tells us that very clearly in verse 21, where he wants to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover. Now, the Passover was the most significant annual event for any Jew. In their calendar, it was the annual celebration, the remembrance of the first Passover. If you don't know the story, I encourage you to go back and read the book of Exodus. The Jews are a scattered group of slaves in Egypt, oppressed and exploited. And God promises that he'll rescue them. And this rescue, which involves the ten plagues, including the last one where God slaughters all the firstborn of the Egyptians, results in them being liberated out of slavery. They get out of there under Moses, they cross the Red Sea, they come to Mount Sinai, eventually they make it into the Promised Land. It's that defining moment for the whole of the nation of Israel. And God, even before it happens, sets up this method of remembering it, like we often do with significant events like your birthdays and other things, Anzac Day, we we have remembrances. And so every year on the date celebrating it, there was a banquet. Every family would come to Jerusalem, the family would gather, and they'd have a meal which was fixed. It It was like the original meal back in Egypt. Unleavened bread, roast lamb, bitter herbs. And it had a fixed liturgy. It began with the youngest child in the gathering, putting up their hand and saying, what makes this night special? And then the father of the household would answer, and he'd recount the story of the, uh, the rescue, God's incredible rescue out of Egypt, and what that meant for them. That was their redemption that made them God's people, gave them liberty, brought them into the promised land. And then there was a breaking of bread, this unleavened bread that reminded them of their slavery in Egypt. And over the night, there were four sort of glasses of wine that were shared around. We think of it as a toast. Uh, toast, everyone clinks their glasses, everyone drinks of it, because we're all celebrating or toasting, whatever it is. Well, to drink of the, the cup was to, to join in the celebration. And the, the four meant different things during the night. Well, Mark doesn't tell us the whole liturgy. He just tells us where it's different to normal. One place is with the bread. In verse 22, Jesus takes the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Quite a strange and certainly a break from norm to say that. The bread was called the bread of affliction. It recalled the pain of slavery and included in eating the bread 
a prayer for freedom, that one day God would free us again like he did back then. And so as you took a piece of bread and ate it, you joined in that prayer for God to liberate it. And Jesus breaks the bread and says, this is my body. It's clear what, what's going to happen. His body, like the bread, is going to get broken. Now, he doesn't mean literally this bread is my body because it's his body that's holding the bread. It, it, it's symbolic. His body will be broken. It, it will be the bread of affliction to bring freedom for God's people. And then he takes a cup. This would have been the third cup of the night, uh, which was called the cup of redemption. It recalled the redemption from slavery in Egypt. And again, there was a prayer for the Messiah to come and redeem them again. And Jesus says in verse 24 with this cup, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He reinterprets it. My blood poured out for many. It's not about the amount of blood, the gore, the, the blood pouring out, gallons of it. it, it it's, it, in Judaism, blood was a symbol of sacrifice, of an animal or someone dying that pays for sin and evil. So blood poured out is a sacrifice for sin. And he says it inaugurates a covenant. A covenant is a, an arrangement, a, a contract between God and humans. A new deal, a new relationship. And Jesus is saying, in my death, when my blood is poured out, when I die, there will be a new relationship between God and humanity. He commandeers the Passover. He replaces it. He supersedes it with his own death. Now, this is an extraordinary thing to do as well, isn't it? Imagine next time it's Anzac Day and everyone is there celebrating, well, remembering what our soldiers have done in wars past very solemn occasion, something that has become more and more significant for us over the last 20 years or so. And imagine you say, now, stop celebrating Anzac Day. From now on, use this day to remember my graduation. What? <laughs> Your graduation isn't as big as Anzac Day, is it? You want everyone to forget Anzac Day and think that that's more important? Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Passover, from now on, is about me and my death. My death as a sacrifice. So it's like the anointing. Jesus is saying, my death is really, really big. And he starts to give us some insight as to why. His body broken, his blood poured out, a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That brings a new covenant, a new relationship between God and people. A whole new deal. You can't get much bigger than that, can you? Donald Trump is trying to forge new relationships with North Korea and with China. Not very successfully, mind you, but he's trying to as if that will change the world. Well, this is the relationship between God, our creator, and humanity. That's much bigger than, than Donald Trump, isn't it? It's even bigger than the Passover. Scene three, the agony in Gethsemane. And in this little story, in this incident, Mark lets us into the inside of Jesus, into his heart and soul. It's sort of like we get a, a zoom in. If you've read through Mark's Gospel, or really any of the Gospels, the progress of Jesus, you'll notice that, in a sense, Jesus is, is out there. You watch him doing things as an outsider. You hear him. You see what he does. But you don't get much of the psychology of Jesus. But here we're let in on the inside. We see Jesus at his rawest. At, at, at his most over, it's almost an invasion of privacy. Next week when we look at the crucifixion, it's sort of like we zoom out again, but here we're zoomed right in. 
We see the sweat, we see the wrinkles, we see the agony on his face as he contemplates his imminent death. And Mark actually struggles to find adequate language to describe it. In the English translations, verse 34, uh, verse 33, it says he was deeply distressed and troubled. The words that imply horror-struck, dismay, loathing, aversion. Verse 34, Jesus describes himself as his soul being overwhelmed with sorrow, with pain to the point of death. It's almost like he'd rather die than go through with it, rather die than die. Why so terrified? Why is Jesus falling apart in the face of his own death? Many people in history have faced their own death, haven't they? Whether you go back to Socrates or you think of of people more uh, more modern, many people have faced death with courage. They haven't fallen apart like this. Is Jesus actually just a wimp? Is he someone who can't cope when the pressure really comes on, even though he's, he's been so cool, calm and collected for the whole rest of the Gospel? What is going on? Well, we get an idea from his prayer. In verse 36, he cries, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Every, every phrase has poignant significance. It carries weight. Abba, Father. The person Jesus has been in relationship with for all eternity, his own Father. Everything is possible to you. What he's going to ask is not impossible for God his Father. If God says no, it's not because he can't do it, it's because he won't do it. And then the request. Take this cup from me. He pictures what is coming as drinking from a cup. Painful, difficult. He begs to be spared from the experience. But his prayer doesn't stop there. His final request is, yet not your will, not my will, but yours be done. He's more committed to pleasing his father than avoiding pain. But the key thing, clearly, is what this cup is. What's this cup he's talking about? Like most of the cups we drink from are, are pleasant. Eh? You, you buy a drink somewhere and you, you buy it because you want to drink it. Well, the idea of drinking a cup, especially a painful one, is littered through the Old Testament. It, it's an image that's picked up in many places. I'll give you one. This is Isaiah 51, where, God says, uh, where Isaiah says to Israel, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. In those days when you had wine, usually the the sort of bottom of the bottle and the bottom of the cup was more mud than wine. It tasted terrible. You only drank it if you were really, really drunk. And even then, it it would make you sick. And, And the Old Testament pictures the wrath of God, the judgment of God, as like drinking that cup. Bitter, that creates a, a sort of hangover and, and pain, and it, in every way is just painful and difficult. But it's something that's almost, it's force you to drink it. The anger of God. I don't know how you respond to that idea, the cup of God's wrath. Many people say, I, I, I can't believe in a God who's angry. Surely he's a God of love. Yes, he is a God of love. That's why he's angry. Let me tell you a story I heard. There's a group of young guys out for the night. They came across a homeless guy uh, who was sleeping rough on a park bench, covered himself in newspapers to keep himself warm. 
And just for a laugh, they decided to set the newspapers alight. The homeless guy was burnt, third degree burns, died a couple of days later in absolute agony in hospital. How do you feel? You shrug your shoulders and say, it's okay, I hope not. I hope you feel angry. In fact, if you don't feel angry, there's something wrong with you, isn't there? There's something not human about you. There's no moral fibre to you if you don't feel angry at things like that. In fact, anger, to not feel angry is just to express indifference. The opposite of love is, is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. Love will lead to anger in the presence of evil. And so for God. His, his anger is an expression of his love for the victims, for those against whom evil is perpetrated. And it's happening every day in every household, in every country, in every community in this world. The anger of God against the evil of humans. It's real and it's right. And Jesus prays that he might be spared from drinking the cup. That is, Jesus knows, he understands that when he dies, it's not the death that matters, it, it's drinking the cup. It's experiencing the anger of his own father, poured out on him, the anger of the father against all the evil of humanity. Not Jesus' evil, he, he, he wasn't responsible. Our evil, all on him, and the, the wrath of his father being poured out on him. That's what he's facing. And he knows that's much worse than crucifixion. Crucifixion was the, the, the worst sort of execution the Romans could dream up. It was incredibly painful. But that's not what horrifies Jesus. It's the prospect of going through hell to experience the full blast of the anger of his own father, rightly against our evil. That's what horrifies him, and that's what rightly horrifies him. For him not to be horrified for that is to actually think that that is nothing. But it's horrifying. It's far worse even than dying. Well, that's why Jesus recoils. He doesn't say, ah, oh, it's okay, bring it on. That, that would be actually wrong. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. He prays that God would spare him from drinking the cup. And what's the father's answer? To his own son who cries for him, saying, all things are possible, please spare me from drinking the cup, his answer is a clear no. By the time we get only 24 hours forward, the answer is very clear. It was the Father's will that he drink the cup, that he drink our cup, in our place, for us. Now, this is really the clearest window we get in Mark's Gospel to what the death of Jesus is all about, the meaning of it. His death was not simply a murder, although it was that. It wasn't the death of a martyr, although it was that. But it was self-sacrifice. It was a substitutionary death. As he bore the wrath of his father against all the evil of humanity to atone for that evil and sin, he experienced hell. The hell I deserve for us in our place to seal the new covenant the new agreement, the new relationship. The fascination that Christians have with Jesus' death is not morbid, but it's real. That, that's why. Because Jesus' death is the most weighty, profound, hugely significant event in the history of humanity. 
So let's try and pull that together. We've seen those three scenes. The event itself doesn't place, take place till the next chapter. But in chapter 14, we've been front and centre seeing what it's all about. Now, three things are clear, I think. Firstly, this death of Jesus is the plan and purpose of God. It's not an unfortunate accident that Jesus didn't quite avoid. If he'd got a better lawyer, he could have got off. Now, Jesus knew it was coming. He was aware of it. He knew what it meant. And he knew it was the plan and purpose of God. You see that, for example, in verse 27. He says to his disciples, you're going to fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who speaks, I will strike the shepherd? God the Father speaks that. He will strike the shepherd and the sheep, the, the disciples, will be scattered. It's the purpose of God. So when Jesus prays, your will be done, it was done. It was the will of the Father that Jesus would drink that cup. Why? Is it because the Father hates the Son? No. It's because the Father and the Son love us and willingly pay the price of our forgiveness and what a price it is. Secondly, we see that it's needed. Then what's the answer to Jesus' prayer? The Son asking his own Father to spare him from the cup? The Son for whom all things are possible? He says no. See, if there was any other way of us being forgiven, surely God would have said yes to his own Son. If, there was any, if, if being good, if being sincere, if being a Hindu, if being a Muslim, if being an atheist could make you right with God, he wouldn't need to die, would he? But the Father said no. Of course, there was no other way. There is no other way. There'll never be any other way. I remember chatting to a couple of law students out on the Oak Lawn a couple of years ago now. And uh, we got talking about Jesus and Christianity and I explained what the message of Christianity was. And one of them said to me, oh, well, I'm happy for you. You obviously need Jesus, but I'm okay. And I said, that makes Jesus look pretty dumb then, doesn't it? And she sort of said, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus thought you needed him to die for you. You think he didn't need to do it. You think it was a whole waste of time and effort, don't you? And she thought for a minute and she said, yeah, I guess I do, actually. Is that what you think? That was a total waste of effort. It was just like the woman with the alabaster flask. She shouldn't have bothered. Better ways to spend your life. Jesus, what you did was a complete waste of time. A complete waste of effort. You shouldn't have bothered. Because unless I trust in Jesus and what he's done, that's actually what I'm saying, isn't it? I know that sounds quite strong, but that is what I'm saying. That's what I'm implying. I I, I don't need it. He shouldn't have bothered. But he did bother. He bothered enormously, enough to go through with it for you and for me. So I want to commend to you that it was not a waste. Jesus' death by crucifixion outside Jerusalem in about the year 30 AD is an event in history. And today we've been taken inside the meaning of that event, the significance of it. In his dying and death, he took our evil on himself. He bore the wrath of a righteous and loving God, his own Father, in our place. There is no other way. There's no other covenant that God has with humanity except in the death of his Son. And that means there's a... It's a sort of choice, isn't it, for all of us? We either embrace that. We either sort of, with the woman, come and, 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 and to Jesus as the one we hope in. Our only hope 
of forgiveness and eternal life and sing his praises and put crosses up around the place. What we say, oh, it's a waste of time, Jesus. You shouldn't have bothered. What's your choice? What's your decision about Jesus? Jesus.